Okay. Hymn 652. <laughs> Pays to come to Bible class early. <laughs> That's where all the hot takes happen. Yeah, the inside baseball. You know, I have a dear pastor friend and he told me that maybe I should edit the podcast. He said, you know, mm, I think maybe you should consider editing that before you put it up because I don't want you to get in trouble for anything. And I said, anything I'm willing to stand by and say publicly, I'll keep it up there. I'm not going to edit it out. Uh, and if anyone wants to push back, I've studied everything that I teach. I don't just do it off the cuff. So uh, they can come at me. But, you know, there are some things it's just best to not have out there, so. <laughs> All right, 6.52. Father, we thank thee who has planted thy holy name within our hearts. Knowledge and faith and life immortal Jesus, thy Son, to us imparts. Thou, Lord, didst make all for thy pleasure. Didst give us food for all our days. Giving in Christ the bread eternal, Thine is the power, be thine the praise. Watch o'er thy church, O Lord, in mercy. Save it from evil, guard it still. Perfected in thy love, united. Cleansed and conformed unto thy will, as grain once scattered on the hillsides, is in this broken bread made one. So from all lands thy church be gathered. To thy kingdom by thy Son. Very good. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, since you never fail to help and govern those whom you nurture in your steadfast fear and love, work in us a perpetual fear and love of your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, the verse of the week is from the Psalms. Psalm 16.2 in the Congregation at Prayer. Let's speak this together. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. O oh, my soul. What does that mean? Why begin that way? O oh, my soul. There's lots of reasons. Not, not one uh, correct one only. What's the point there? O oh, my soul. in the Bible, my inmost being, uh, speaking from the heart, or... Sure. Uh, yeah, my inmost being, speaking yeah. from the heart. Yeah. Uh, that sounds to me similar to that. Yes, it would be. So there's a, there's a few ways to think about it. That's, that's a, the more theological. The most basic way to think about it is just saying, self... My great-grandpa used to tell stories, and he would say, so I said to myself, self, you know, something like that, saying, oh, my soul, you have said, it's an internal conversation. You have said to, your, uh, to, to the Lord, you, myself, 
but there's something else there too. It's not just the identifier of the self. It's the deeper part of the self, the soul. The, in the Hebrew, the word for soul is ruach, which is like breath, a breathing. Um, in the Greek, it's psuche, like psychology, your psuchos, which is something that is not your body. And so when the soul is the part that speaks, it's identifying one, faith, because your soul speaks with faith, because your soul is the ruach, the breath that God puts into you. There's something that differentiates you from animals. And uh, it, the soul always longs for God. There is a deep longing of the soul to be united with God. So when you say, oh, my soul, you have said, it's the internal dialogue that says, this is the voice of faith talking. This is the part of me that longs for God and wants to know him. And the part of me that does know God, even in the most primitive sense, because I can't say that I really know God in my head with my intellect, the same way that I could say something like, I know Denny or I know Nancy or I know Bill. It's a different kind of thing. So, O oh soul, you have said to the Lord, not me per se, but the good that God has worked in me, the voice of faith that fears, love and fears, loves, and trusts in God, this part of me that holds firmly to it and that believes, says to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. What is that? What is, the, what is your Lord? Sure, the guy in charge of you. A good way to think about that is, uh, if you think about like the medieval feudal structure, you have a Lord. A town has a Lord who lives in the castle of the town, and what is the Lord's job? to protect you and to provide for you and to govern you and rule you and maintain good order and, um, you know, in any other way to care for those who are entrusted to him. So the Lord is your Lord. You are my Lord, says your soul. You are the one who is over me and protects me. You are the one who cares for me. You are the one who rescues me and saves me. And that, I think, gets into sovereignty. There is, you know, the, the Reformed Christians, which we, we, are, we are born of the Reformation, but we would not consider ourselves Reformed in the general sense. Reformed churches generally come from the Swiss Reformation, not the German. The, the Reformed emphasize the sovereignty of God. And many evangelicals on the Reformed side, when you talk to them, every, all of their discussion about God is centered on the sovereign nature of God, which is, uh, God is sovereign, but you can't emphasize, that's what we would say, you can't emphasize the sovereign nature of God over other things, because if you do, it leads to problems. Well, God being Lord is an example of his sovereignty, because he actually is over you and has authority over you. But sovereignty all by itself doesn't do anything. Actually, I would take that back maybe and say sovereignty all by itself becomes draconian because you have the power and you will wield the power and they don't have the power, so you'll do what you want, thank you. And therefore, sovereignty has to be wielded in subservience to something else. What is that something else? If you're going to wield power, how do you wield it responsibly? By the way, a good way to think about this question is to think about what St. Paul says and what St. Peter says to husbands in their epistles. Wives are told that they are to what? Submit or obey, but husbands are commanded to do what? To love. So that power can never be, sovereignty, 
authority can never be separated from love. And if it's ever wielded apart from love or in a way that is dominant over love, it's not true sovereignty because it's not being wielded according to how it must be. So God is the Lord and he is sovereign, but he is sovereign in love so that when he wields his power and exercises it, it is always for your good. It's never for the sake of itself. So that's a good thing to say, you are my Lord. And it's a joyous word that you are able to say, yes, God is my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Now this should make you think of what Isaiah the prophet writes. What does he say? My, my works, my goodness, my deeds in your sight are as, do you remember? Filthy rags. And just to drive this point home, that your goodness and your works are not the things that matter, this is a polite translation of what Isaiah really says, because he doesn't say dirty rags, he says used menstrual cloths. That is how valuable your works are and your goodness is to God as valuable as used menstrual cloths. Now there is a picture you can't get out of your head. That's what I am, okay? So, you know, the Bible, the English version of the Bible often is very polite uh, when, when perhaps the original text is not, which is probably for the best. My mother would say amen to that. <laughs> that it's probably for the best? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's fun to talk about when you say, well, what does it really say? And then you can, you know, have moments like this. Uh, but if I'm going to be sitting and reading the Bible for the amount of time I'm supposed to be reading the Bible, I would prefer it to be a little more polite than, you know, the sense is still coming across. So my goodness is nothing apart from you. I have nothing good to offer you. Anything good that is in me is yours. Uh, you know, to paraphrase St. Augustine's Confessions, um, Everything good in me is the Lord and everything else is my fault. And that's the truth, okay? So let's speak this again. O oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. All right, to the Christian questions. Do you hope to be saved? Yes, In whom then do you trust? Correct. So you hope to be saved and you say, yes, salvation is my hope. But what does that mean to say that you are hoping for or that you have something that is your hope? You look forward to it. Yes. Can you look forward to something you don't know about? Can I look forward to my birthday party if I don't know that I have a birthday party coming? No. And therefore, the reason I look forward to my birthday party is because I know that it's coming. I haven't seen my birthday party, but it is coming, and I'm excited for when it comes. So you do know about it. You're not hoping, in this case, in something you know nothing about. You're hoping in something that's concrete. My hope is in salvation. That is my hope. I want it. I long for it. I am excited for it. Because I know concretely that it is real and that it is coming and that it is mine. And therefore, there is the then in the next question. Well, if you have hope, in whom then do you trust? Well, seeing as you have hope, what's your hope in? Where does salvation come from? Ah, good question. My hope is in my dear Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one I'll trust in. He is the one I will cast my lot with because I know concretely that he actually has won my salvation. So I'll hedge my bets and go with Jesus instead of Baal or Moloch or, you know, anything else, because he is the only one that is actually concrete. Yes? Gail just uh, okay. whispered to me, uh, Hebrews 
chapter 11, verse 1. Yes. Faith is certain of, of being certain of what we hope for. Yes. I didn't say that right. Certain of what we do not see. Yes. But, but seeing and knowing are different. Yeah. So I don't see my salvation, not in, you know, not in the, the typical way we would say it mm -hmm. or understand that. I don't see it, but I do know it. It is concrete. That's why it's so important that you read the Gospels, especially not as history books. The, the evangelists aren't following Jesus around going, oh, we better record this for the record. So everyone's going to want to know what happened in this year. If you want to read a historian, there's lots of historians. There's a church historian. You can read Eusebius, the church historian. How do you think the church knows so much about the names and events of people that the Bible actually doesn't talk about? You know, there's a lot of stuff that, that you maybe take for granted that you know because it isn't actually in the Bible. And there are people that become very surprised when they know things and then you tell them, well, where is that? And they look it up in the Bible and go, well, wait a minute. It's got to be in here, isn't it? No, because it's not. Because it came from outside. It came from a historian. You can read Flavius Josephus, the great Roman Jew. That's his name. Uh, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, he took a Roman name. He was hated by everyone because he was a traitor. He was a Jew that said, oh, the Romans, look at them, they're pretty good. Hey, can I write histories for you guys? And they said, yeah, sure. So he, but he wrote uh, uh, histories. You can read the histories. He talks about Jesus in his histories. And it's great because he says, this man, Jesus, whom some said was the Messiah. So you know people actually were saying that. That's, that's his history. And then you've got Eusebius, who is the church historian, who's telling you all these other peripheral things that are happening around the Gospels and in the book of Acts, the growth of the church. But Eusebius will tell you all of these other things because the Gospels are not primarily concerned with the history of it. They're not primarily concerned with telling you about the miracles of Jesus so you can say, wow, boy, that's pretty cool. He did that thing historically in that place at that time in that year. Blah, 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 blah. That's not why they're writing. They're writing, as St. John says, that you may believe. So giving you eyewitness testimony to show you this is salvation. And in this Jesus, you can actually hope with deep and sincere faith because it's not a farce. As St. Peter says, we're not telling you cunningly devised fables. We're not making any of this stuff up. We're telling you exactly what had happened. And that's why we believe, and that's why you should believe, because you're listening to us. Bill. <clears throat> the, uh, the University of Missouri School of Journalism has got kind of an international re reputation. Okay. The entryway into the journalism school is a big arched walkthrough thing. And over the top of it, it says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And everybody thinks that's a quotation from some great journalist everywhere because <laughs> they don't subscribe, you know, the Bible passage underneath it. It just says, you know, and it goes, boy, that's pretty. I'll bet Walter Cronkite said that. Too. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right, okay, so in my dear Lord Jesus Christ, the last thing I want to say here is, this language, my dear Lord Jesus Christ, should make you think of another part of the catechism. Should make you think of another part of the catechism where that kind of language is used. Oh, okay, well, yeah, very good. That's not actually what I was thinking of, but well done, yes. Okay, well, there's another one too. Uh, she, she, she said the, the, the verba, the words of institution, our dear Lord Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed. Um, pardon me? Yeah, second article of the creed. Now that's the one that I was thinking of uh, because you can insert a question here into these questions and answers in my dear Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why then is Jesus your hope? What has he done for you? Which is the question the second article of the creed answers. Purchased and won me, a lost and condemned person, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious uh, blood. blood. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so that's, this should make you think of that because we're not just saying, oh, Jesus... Jesus is our hope for no reason because some dudes told us that we should. No, they're telling you, the Gospels are telling you 
why Jesus is the hope, because he has actually won salvation, and we're testifying to the fact that he has actually come as the Messiah and won salvation. He, this really did happen. So I trust in my dear Lord Jesus Christ, and in him then, who has won salvation, who has purchased and won me, redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, then I have hope of salvation, and I have the confidence of that hope because I know for a fact that this is true. And sort of to be C.S. Lewis for a minute, Christianity is obviously the most reasonable set of doctrines out there. All right, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Bishop Robert Barron, who I've talked about, I like him. He does the Word on Fire Institute, whose Bibles I have advertised. He, he says, I'm a Christian for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because it's the most reasonable thing out there, which I think is absolutely true. It's re, it's a re, it is a reasonable thing. And if you're going to look around and compare everything, if you, if you want to go denomination shopping, or religion shopping, rather, uh, Christianity is the only one that actually makes any degree of sense. For one, because it's the one that's different than everybody else. Everybody else sort of has certain things in common. Not Christianity. You're, we're kind of off on our own, because Jesus is extreme, which I think I've said before. Why would you go, I don't know, uh, why would you go for a regular bike ride when you could do extreme bike riding, right? Why would I go there when I could do this instead? This is the extreme, but it's the only one of its kind. All right. Vacation is over. Would you like to be my timekeeper again? <laughs> Got it. Okay. Got plenty of time. <laughs> Good. Good. I'm, I'm glad. I'd be, worried, I'd be worried if we didn't. Okay, we're going we're gonna to start the large catechism today. Today's kind of, my plan for today is to be a little bit introductory, to talk a little bit about the large catechism specifically, but catechisms in general, and to look at the preface. Uh, I think probably what we're going to end up having time to do today is to look at the shorter preface, because the large catechism actually has two prefaces. There's a longer preface and a shorter preface. So I want to give you just a little bit of background information. Uh, you're welcome, by the way, if you own a book of Concord, which this is the Concordia uh, edition of the book of Concord, the Paul McCain version. This is the one I would recommend if you just want to sit down and read the, read the confessions. Um, or you can find them online. But this one is nicer because it's easy to read, the layout is nice, and it has these woodcuts, which are the actual original woodcuts from the period. Pastor, yes. 10, 20 years ago sometime, CPH had a, uh, when that was first printed, Yep. You could, you could buy that for like 50% off, and uh, have lots of people in the congregation have yeah, great. Had an opportunity to buy that. It's you, don't, you don't have to bring it here. This is not like school. And I'm not going to give you homework. But I'm going to use it, and, and you're welcome to bring yours and follow along if you want. I'll have some handouts with some major bullet points and summaries of what's going on, so that'll be something you'll have too. Otherwise, you can use whatever edition you want. I actually don't normally use this one. I'm using it because it's easier to teach from, but... I use a Kolb Wengert, which is the academic, that's the academic version of the text, which is not easy to read, and I wouldn't maybe recommend it if you're not going to be taking an academic approach to the confessions. <laughs> There's also, if you want to be real fancy, like pinkies up reading, then you can get the Concordia Triglot, which is the old one from the 1920s, I think 1921. That's the one with the German, the Latin, and the English all in a big, all in, you know, three columns. 
And my triglot, I don't want to brag or anything, because, you know, I'm pretty humble, but... <laughs> and proud of it, too. Very proud of it, yeah. <laughs> Probably the humblest person you've ever met. My triglot, I am the fourth generation of, of pastor who has owned that book. And every pastor who has owned it before me, two of whom I don't even know, wrote their notes and their, did their underlining in different color, which I love so much. Ordinarily, that would peeve me to no end because I'm very obsessive about how my books are underlined in. And, uh, but I love this because you can read through the confessions and you can read the notes from three generations and you can tell which ones they are because the inks are all different color. So I have not written in it um, because there's not space for my notes, but also because we're getting to the point where we're into non-standard colors with me, and I don't really want to write in the triglot with like, pink or orange. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the catechisms. And to do that, we need to talk a little bit about the Lutheran confessions, generally speaking. Now, you as individuals are not subscribed to the confessions, which means that you are bound to them. But in order to be a Lutheran congregation, the congregation, when, when bless you, when it is chartered, must be uh, a subscriber of the confession. So Holy Trinity Lutheran Church subscribes unconditionally to the Lutheran confessions, pardon me, and as a pastor, I am the individual among this group who is individually compelled to subscribe. You cannot be a Lutheran pastor if you don't vow to uphold the confessions, which happens at your ordination. You get asked a bunch of questions about, are you going to be faithful? And in a certain sense, they're kind of like marriage vows, 100% going to be broken, but you don't use that as license to break them. You just do your best and know that you're going to fail and ask for forgiveness when you do, but do your best not to, okay? So I, as a pastor, have to subscribe to the confessions unconditionally. I'm not allowed to disagree with anything in them. This congregation is not allowed to disagree with anything in them, which means we cannot do or allow anything to be said or taught or happen here that in any way goes against the Lutheran confessions. Otherwise, we end up like Saddleback Church and the SBC, and that is getting the boot, which we don't particularly want to do because we would like to live in peace and harmony and not in strife. So what are the Lutheran confessions? They are, this is really, really, really basic. The Lutheran confessions are the collection of documents that comprise what we would, or what I would maybe call, the Lutheran expression of the Christian faith. It's not to say that what's contained in this book, the confessions of the Lutheran church, are Christianity full stop, period. There are others that would disagree with our confessions on points here and there, and I know many of them, but I also wouldn't say that they aren't Christians. So if you've gone through the catechumenate with me, you know this. If you haven't, you should just come to the catechumenate. You've got nothing to lose. You're not doing anything at 10 o'clock on a Saturday. Come and eat donuts and treats, drink some coffee, and, uh, and come to class. But if you haven't been to catechumenate, the first thing that I emphasize is this. I am not teaching you to be Lutherans first. That doesn't work. That's backwards. Because then you worship the Lutheran church, but you don't actually worship the Christian God. You've made a God of something else. 
So I want you to be a Christian first, and I want you to understand what it is the Christian church historically in unity throughout time, through its entire existence, has taught, affirmed, and believed. And being a Christian first, then, and only then, can you actually start to look at the Lutheran confessions and say, okay now, I know what it is to be a Christian, but how am I going to express the Christian faith? Well, we say we express the Christian faith in this way, and we can tie everything that we do back to um, the history of the church. Now, if you read the Augsburg Confession, which is the first document in our Lutheran confessions, that's kind of what they do. There's the confession itself, which is when they were uh, accused by, by um, the Roman Catholic Church of, of promulgating heresy and causing disruption. They brought this to uh, Charles V, the emperor, and they said, look, this is what we believe. These are the things that we affirm. Now, this is not in any way different than what Christians have affirmed. See? And then, and then there was the refutation done by the Roman Catholic theologians where they looked at it and they say, we agree with this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're fine here. But at this point, you know, we, we got a bone to pick with you saying this. And then the Lutherans responded with what is called the apology of the Augsburg Confession, which doesn't mean that they said, I'm sorry for writing that. Apology is a defense, like Socrates, you know, Plato's apology, which is Socrates' defense of, <laughs> of his corrupting of the youth, <laughs> which you should read. If you're into philosophy, you have to read Plato's apology, Socrates'. <laughs> Socrates is kind of a jerk, okay? <laughs> but in a funny way, <laughs> you, just, you just have to kind of read it. Uh, I don't really know the etymology behind that. But the original meaning of an apology is not that you are sorry for saying what you have said, but that you are actually <laughs> defending what you have said. And so there's the, the apology. And one thing when you read the apology that you see is there is a great appeal not only to Scripture, but also to the church fathers. This is, by the way, why when you say sola scriptura, you don't know what you're saying because nine out of ten Lutherans think that when they say sola scriptura, they mean the Bible and nothing but the Bible, which is not what it means. That is called scriptura nuda, which is something that the evangelical side of Christianity affirms, not us. And you can tell that because when you read the Augsburg Confession, they're not appealing only to scripture, they're also appealing to the church fathers. But the direction in which the appeals go is important because the appeals work like this. First from Scripture, then from the Church Fathers. That is sola scriptura, which means that the Word of God is the chief authority. It is the only king. It is the only ruler of all authority. But we don't throw out other things like the writings of the Church Fathers or the Confessions. Okay, so they appeal to the church fathers. Now that is important because it tells you that this is actually an expression of historic Christianity. Is it the only correct expression? I've already kind of hinted at that. No, and I am not so bold as to say that the Lutheran church, generally speaking, is the only church body that has it altogether correct. And I would not say of other bodies that they are 100% wrong. I think it takes a bit of arrogance to say that somebody is 100% wrong and that there is absolutely no truth there at all. Now, sure, there are some sects that you can look at. You say, yeah, they're way, they're way off. But within the confines of just plain old Christianity, you know, can you look at a Catholic and can you really say they're not a real Christian because they aren't a Lutheran? or the faithful Baptist convention that works to kick heresy out. They don't think it's really Jesus there, which is a problem, but can you really look at them and say they're not real Christians? Not really. So 
our confessions, our, they are our, uh, to use the language of the confessions, our symbols. The symbols and public declaration of what we teach about historic Christianity and how, this, this is now my language, how we express historic Christianity within this church body. Yeah, we believe, teach, and confess that, that this is what Scripture means when it says things, that this is what the church fathers meant when they said things, that these historic practices of the church are important and that we should keep on doing them, so we do. Now, people disagree, but in the Lutheran church, that's, this is our expression of the faith, uh, which is funny. Uh, I, you know, I said we're not really Reformed because the truth is that we're actually Catholics. Lutherans are Catholics. We're Reformed Catholics. So we, out of every denomination, are the closest to Catholicism. Maybe the, the Anglicans, good Anglicans, are pretty close too. Um, but we, we are camped out in the backyard of the Catholics. Yes? Sure. Yeah. Now Luther did. It, to be perfectly fair and and charitable, Luther did become a real sourpuss of a grump. Okay. So it sort of depends what Luther you're reading, because there's a time period where he's only focused on well, this is what's true, and I want to be the church, and I, I want the church. And then you reach a certain point where he's just kind of like, you know what? Screw this. I'm done. This is, the, this is what we're going to be. This is who we are, and everybody else can go to hell. And you, you, that you know, kind of comes through in his writings. In fact, sometimes I personally find some of the things he wrote later in life difficult to read, because he spends more time making fun of people than he does making an actual logical point. You know, like, all right, fine, yes, you know, the, the Pope is, is a pile of horse manure and the devil eats it and whatever, but tell, I, like, you're talking about justification, so say something about justification. You know, so he does kind of grow up to be a grump, uh, and, but those are always the writings that they point to. It's like, well, he said this. But here's the best part, okay? So Luther said a lot of stuff. You are not subscribed to Martin Luther. Like we have a church body that bears his name, which he didn't do, the Catholics did that. But we're not subscribed to Luther. We're subscribed to the Lutheran Confessions, which were written by more people than just Luther. So the, the, the Roman Catholics often popularly think that whatever Luther said, we have to agree with. If that's the truth, this is not the place to be. <laughs> Luther, you know, this is the one I always point to. There's lots more, but Luther did say that if you married a woman and then found out after you were married that she was barren, you could divorce her and, and there would be, that would be perfectly pious because you married her under false pretense. I'm not going to preach a sermon about how you wives better be given babies or you're going to get divorced. I'm not going to do that because that's not really how we would talk about that, okay? Uh, so we don't subscribe to, to Luther. We're subscribed to the confessions. Luther said a lot of really good stuff, and he said some bad stuff too. The Nazis used Luther as justification for heaven's sake. Anybody can use Luther just like they can with anybody to say whatever they want and justify whatever they want. That's not the point. Our point is we subscribe to these specific documents. Everything else, sure, can be informative. Sure, can be fun to read. Can even be beautiful to read. Read the, the Luther's commentary on the Psalms are fantastic. If you want to actually understand the Psalms as being more than just the thing we say in church in the Intuit or during Matins, well then read the commentary and you actually find out the depth of, of how Christ really sits in the Psalms. So we've got the, the Augsburg Confession and its apology. A few of the other documents are, of course, the small catechism and the large catechism, which are written by Luther, the small called articles, which are written by Luther, the 
formula of Concord, which uh, that's the latest addition to the Book of Concord, I believe in the 1580s. And in fact, the earliest editions of the Book of Concord did not contain the formula of Concord. Um, so the Finnish Lutheran church body actually doesn't subscribe to that. They say, that's a late edition. We don't add anything to the original. We're not going to subscribe to that. Now, we do. Um, so that is just a collection of here are the biggest arguments that we're facing right now, and here is our response to the arguments. Here's how to do it from a Lutheran standpoint. And then, of course, we've got the creeds. Those are a part of our confessions because we subscribe unconditionally to the creeds of the church just because every good Christian should. That's kind of why the creeds are there, one reason why. And then there's the treatise, a small treatise called On the Power and Primacy of the Pope, which basically talks about the problems with the abuse of the papal authority and the papal office, but which ends with this line, no Lutherans either know or remember, because it says <laughs> if the Pope actually starts teaching correctly, we will gladly kiss his ring and submit to him. Now, when's the last time you heard a Lutheran say, I want to be under the Pope? I think today may have been the first time you heard that. <laughs> I love whipping that one out. So, because, you know, every now and then you run into those Lutherans that are just really, really, and Catholics are going to hell, blah, 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 blah. I'm so glad I'm a Lutheran. And then you just say, yeah, but what about the power and primacy of the Pope? I don't even know what that is. Oxford confession is my confession. You say, actually, your confession also includes power and primacy of the Pope, wherein you say, I can't wait for the good Pope that I can be under. Then they're not your friend. It is not this one. I, you know, I think I gladly would have been under the last one and maybe his predecessor too, but not this one. I don't believe he's worthy of his name. Okay, why do we have the confessions? They safeguard us, they teach us, but they also safeguard us. That's important. You can go to 10 different churches 10 different Bible studies, all on the same verse, and have 10 different denominations tell you what it means. Which one is right? That's the, the big question. Yeah, the Lutherans! <laughs> Which one is right? That's not a question that can be answered by me right now with that general thing. But the point that I'm trying to make is, when you actually ask yourself, well, which one of these 10 is right? Hmm. Well, the one that speaks truly. How do you know what's truly? How do you know how to read the Bible? Like you're supposed to read it, right? But how do you know what it says? Because no scripture is of private interpretation. Well, you read the Bible with the church, and the church tells you how to read the Bible, which is why somebody who is outside of the church can never read and understand the Bible. I told you, I've got this skeptic's Bible, the annotated skeptic's Bible. What a gas. It's hilarious. And this is supposed to be serious, too. It's this guy, oh, I'm a big-time academic. I'm going to show you why Christianity is bad, because you trust this book, and it's bad, and it's filled with contradictions. And My brother was here last week, you know, and he was in my office or something, and he pulled that off the shelf and started reading it, and he just started laughing. He's like, what? What's this guy saying? Sometimes the guy's little annotated notes are just a laughing, smiley face because he goes, ha, ah, that word's in the Bible. What, how, that's so dumb. Like he uses the King James Version and it was, there was the word unicorn. He said, ah, Christians believe in unicorns. <laughs> that's so dumb. What a dumb book. Uh, except for the word is monoceros. And there is archaeological evidence for that. The Siberian unicorn, I think, or the Siberian rhinoceros is what it's called. Massive, like a, like a rhinoceros, but like twice as big with just one big giant horn. They even used the skeleton to then put skin, like pretend skin on it to see how big it would be. And the head is like right here. And you think, God is as mighty as a unicorn. And you think, 
But what it really is saying is this big, giant, muscular rhino with a horn that's as big around as a man. That's a whole lot more scary. Oh, it's so funny to say unicorn. So anyway, it's just so obvious that when you're reading this book, it's somebody who's from the outside looking in and not making any connections at all, doesn't actually understand the point of any of this. And it just goes to show you, it's a church book. How do you understand a church book if you're not of the church? And then when you're in the church, to understand it, you just listen to the church because it's her book. She'll tell you. So you hear a sermon. Hey, the church is telling you something. You listen to the liturgy. Hey, the church is telling you something. Remember when I read that homily? This is last, oh, this was last week, I think, or two weeks ago. The homily about, um, from the, that anonymous homily from the second century about the harrowing. And I said, Jesus goes down and he looks at Adam and he says, the Lord be with you. And Adam says, and with your spirit. Remember that? Because the liturgy is confessing this real biblical scriptural truth. So all of this stuff, uh, is in, you, you understand it because you're in it. But you can't, be, you can't understand it from outside. Did you have a... Is that the self-study Bible? Are you talking about one that no, our synod published? study Bible, but this is, a friend of mine was doing a Bible study with this, and she would read it, and it would go on and on, and I couldn't, I, I kept saying, tell me what verse you're on, because verse goes on and on. Oh, in, I don't know. I don't, I mean, there's, there's lots of things that are like that, like an expositor's Bible commentary or something like that, where you get one book for each book of the Bible, and then it just gives you all the notes. But that's more of a commentary. I mean, you can't really read the Bible alongside a commentary. Well, this was just, an, I think she said it was the expanded version or the expanded something. The expanded version. Hmm. Like, more words to explain what was going on, I don't know. Oh, I don't, I don't know. There are lots of different editions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I don't think the library wants it. You, okay, let me just preface this. You four caused me to have to completely redo the catechumenate. Because of the questions that you asked, they were things I never ever thought about. And after you said them, I thought, why didn't I think of that? I should have addressed that. Okay, so you've got a good knack for asking good questions that I am either unprepared to answer or questions that put me up against the wall to answer. So I'll, I'll answer your question like this. There are many notes that are good and helpful in the Lutheran Study Bible, and many things in the introductions to the books that are good and informative and helpful. If you had the choice between the new Lutheran Study Bible or an edition of the Concordia Self-Study Bible from years ago that was translated in the New King James and not the NIV, I would probably tell you to buy the Self-Study Bible instead. Does that answer your question? Okay, yeah, very good. <laughs> yep, yep. All right, <laughs> yes, Bill? No, no, never mind. I had a question. You, go ahead. No, you can, you can ask it. <clears throat> Were you talking about <clears throat> the Lutheran confessions that, that you have to um, subscribe. Sign, yeah, yes. subscribe to? Sign yes. Up. And I was looking at, at the, at the uh, confirmation in the Scripture, and it doesn't show it, but I know that I have been to confirmations where the pastor asked the confirmant to subscribe to each one of the... the um, the, the uh, different 
the Augsburg Confession, the small called articles. I know I've heard that in confirmation. They, they might. The confirmation right that we have now in the book, and I'm, I'm see, this is where I grew up really only with this hymnal. So I don't know the TLH as well as many of you probably do. So I don't, I'd have to look it up in the TLH agenda to even find the confirmation right. So maybe in the older versions they would have that. They don't in the new one because I think it's implied that if you're saying, yes, I, I believe the things that are taught in this congregation, that that includes the confessions because but the other thing is, you as individuals aren't bound to that in the same way. Uh, you could say something and maybe disagree with some of the confessions, and the only response to you would be, well, are you sure you still want to be a member of this church then, if that's the case? If I disagree with it, I get brought up before a board and am possibly defrocked and kicked out. That's the difference. Uh, the congregation, if the congregation as a whole starts doing things that are not in accord, because the congregation as an entity, chartered body, is, is subscribed, the congregation can be kicked out, like Saddleback was, by virtue of that. But you as an individual have a little more leeway because you are, you know, you're here because you believe that what's here is taught, but you're not going to get kicked out at the synodical level for saying, well, I'm confused about this and I maybe think that it could have been said better. Maybe. Don't go there. <laughs> All right. To the catechisms, small and large. A catechism is actually a historic document of the church and it doesn't, it doesn't mean, when you say catechism, it doesn't mean just like the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the book that you read, or the small catechism, or the large catechism, or the Heidelberg, or the Westminster, or any of these catechisms. Those catechisms are all born from this church practice of having a catechism, which is uh, something that was the primary texts of the faith which is why our catechism has what we call the six chief parts, because they are the primary things, but they're broken up. So there's three on one side and three on the other. The, the first three are the most important, which are the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, because those three texts are the, capital T-H-E, foundational texts for Christianity. You cannot have a Christian who does not know the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. So every Christian must know that and must be taught those three foundational things. Now, ours also then speaks of the sacraments, which are <laughs> confession and absolution, and then the two main ones, which are baptism and the Eucharist. Okay, Remember, we don't count sacraments. You may have been taught in confirmation. There are only two. If you were taught that, it's not what the confessions say. The confessions say there are at least two, but that's a lot different than only two. And the confessions also say confession and absolution is rightly called a sacrament. And it kind of, you know, you should kind of think about it that way. So you've got the, then the sacraments. Um, because it gives greater understanding to the parts of the Christian faith that give you life in this world, the, the places where you go to actually see Jesus, to touch Jesus, to encounter Jesus, and to get the gifts that Jesus promises to give. Becky, did you have a question? The Catholics have more, right? More sacraments? Yeah, they have seven. And I will tell you that I disagree with almost none of what they consider to be a sacrament. And in fact, in the freedom that I am given by our own confessions that say, as long as baptism and the Eucharist you consider to be your chief sacraments, and you know, you kind of acknowledge marriage can rightly be called a sacrament, and also confession and absolution really should be called a sacrament 
Anything else could be a sacrament if you really wanted it to, as long as we're going to acknowledge these two chief ones. You can have two, you can have 18. Doesn't really matter. We don't put a, put a number on it. Okay. Oh. It's sacred. Yeah, it's something. So, say it's something that's instituted by Christ Himself. That is a. <clears throat> that is a combination of word, or spirit, something the spiritual side, the word and material. So think of baptism, water and word, or bread and wine and word, things like that, wherein the Lord dispenses his gifts. The Catholics would maybe say his grace. I don't disagree with that, but to use Lutheran language, we would say dispenses his gifts. So that's how we would. Now, a sacrament sometimes is defined as being, what is it, the, the external sign of an internal reality. I don't know that I like that as much. Pastor. Yes. Two things. It's just no. time enough for me to speak. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get to the short preface. Okay. What's the second thing? <laughs> better be better news than the first thing. <laughs> In June of 1957, when I was confirmed, one of the questions was concerns the, the sacraments. And as I remember Pastor Wurstler saying, the sacrament had, had to have scripture, had to have uh, uh, scripture, and then it had to have physical means, water and the word. Sure. And then it had to offer forgiveness of sins. Sure. So, Which we would maybe lump in and saying, that's grace. Okay. You know, or the gifts of God. When you, next time you see Wurstler, I want you to... <laughs> Here's the. <laughs> At ten fifteen, I'm just reminded. Okay, <laughs> when you go to when you go to private confession and absolution, what happens? You have a word of absolution that's combined with what? Okay, the pastor is there for one. And the past, does the pastor show up to absolve your sins in street clothes? No. No, why not? Because you wouldn't represent Christ. I wouldn't be representing Christ, and I'm not the one doing anything. Guys, it ain't me. It's Christ. So remember, vestments, I'm hiding from you. I don't want you to see me. So I put on all these different layers so that you're not looking at me because I don't want you to look at me. I want you to look at Christ. So you are vested, which is the sign of Christ's office, which is the, the means through which Christ does his work in the church. But you have something else aside from the physical, uh, the physical matter that is me. There's something else in confession and absolution. What does the pastor do when he absolves your sins? Does he loom over you? Your sins are forgiven. Hands on. Hands on. You have, and what would we call that? Touch. You have touch, which is why we also talk about, uh, we talk, I, I would tell you that the gospel is the touch of Jesus. And the sacrament is, shall we say, a manifestation of the gospel. There's lots of different ways to talk about this. Listen, the bare bones is this. The, cat, the, the confessions of the Lutheran Church say there are at least two sacraments and at least two that should be considered sacraments. And apart from those, you know, whatever. You want to think it's a sacrament? Okay, that's fine. Okay. We just don't say, there's this many and no more and no less. That's why the Eastern Church has it right, because they just call them the mysteries. So, well, that's a mystery. Well, go to the mystery of baptism. Go to the mystery of the Eucharist. Go to the mystery of absolution. Go to the mystery of ordination. Okay. So, so is the hand sanitizer part of the sacrament? <laughs> is the hand sanitizer part of the sacrament? See me after class. <laughs> yes, sir.
<laughs> uh, no. <laughs> That's, we, shall we say, to make you comfortable about the sacrament. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bill, for being timekeeper. All right. We'll see you at the altar.